Before we get started with this edition of the Books Podcast, we want to point you in the direction of our sponsor Squarespace. For everything you need to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com guardian to get 10% off your first purchase. And now, on with the show. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Books Podcast. I'm Susanna Tresillian. This week we're taking various walks around worlds oral, literary and romantically geographical. I'm bound to Paris by something that I don't understand, but maybe I occasionally have little affairs with London, I don't know. We're joined by the Bookshop Band, who bring books to musical life and will play us two songs live in the studio. And we begin with this excerpt from Curiouser and Curiouser from Alice in Wonderland. bookshop band later on. For now we turn from wonderlands to the wandering of lands and the women who wandered them. Flaneurs, a title to say with relish, a feminine form of flaneur, a word for idlers and dawdling observers, usually in cities. An early experience of living abroad set Lauren Elkin off thinking about the women whose footsteps she's following in. The resulting book is a cultural history of women writers and artists who discover, claim, and perhaps reclaim the streets of their cities by taking to it on foot, on their own terms, and in their own good time. She met with Sean Kane and began by giving her definition of the word flaneuse. Flaneuse, noun from the French, feminine form of flaneur, an idler, a dawdling observer, usually found in cities. That is an imaginary definition. Most French dictionaries don't even include the word. The 1905 Littré does make an allowance for flâneur, euse, qui flâne. But the Dictionnaire vivant de la langue française defines it, believe it or not, as a kind of lounge chair. Is that some kind of joke? The only kind of curious idling a woman does is lying down? This usage, slang of course, began around 1840 and peaked in the 1920s, but continues today. Search for flaneuse on Google Images, and the word brings up a drawing of George Sand, a picture of a young woman sitting on a Parisian bench, and a few images of outdoor furniture. The argument against the flaneuse sometimes has to do with questions of visibility. It is crucial for the flaneur to be functionally invisible, writes Luc Sant, defending his own gendering of the flaneur as male and not female. This remark is at the same time unfair and cruelly accurate. We would love to be invisible the way a man is. We're not the ones who make ourselves visible in the sense that Sant means, in terms of the stir a woman alone in public can create. It's the gaze of the flaneur that makes the woman who would join his ranks too visible to slip by unnoticed. But if we're so conspicuous, why have we been written out of the history of cities? It's up to us to paint ourselves back into the picture in ways we can live with. 
Jeanne started by asking her what it was about women wandering the streets that first piqued her interest. Well, I started getting interested in the figure of the flaneuse when I was studying abroad in Paris in the late 1990s, and just all on my own realized that it was a really enjoyable thing to just spend some time dawdling around the city. You could just walk anywhere, and and everything that you saw was interesting or piqued my curiosity and got me thinking and imagining and fantasizing about the other people who might have lived in those streets and and the life that I could have, you know, living in Paris. And so I started looking into. I don't know how I heard the word flaneur somewhere. I came across it, and I started looking into the flaneur and wanted to know more about women specifically. I went to Barnard College, which is a women's college. I was, you know, a budding feminist.、Uh, was very into Virginia Woolf and Simone de Beauvoir, and so I was like, okay, well, so cool. The flaneur is this Baudelaire guy. Who's the flaneuse? And then I found all of these feminist critics and art historians debating whether or not there could have been a flaneuse at the time when Baudelaire. Wrote、uh, the painter of modern life, his series of essays on Paris and Constantin Guisse, this this illustrator. The role for women in public life was extremely narrow. Women were mothers, women were sisters, women were maiden aunties. You know, at a certain level of society, and they certainly were not walking the streets in their massive crinolines and in their little shoes, the way that Baudelaire liked to. So Baudelaire speaks of the flaneur as a real kind of masculine man of leisure wandering around the city, and does not allow for a woman who practices the same sort of engagement with the city. He, when he features women, they're old women or they're decayed bodies or they're prostitutes or they're like delightful young women who don't have much, you know, going on upstairs. So there really is just no allowance in the popular accounts that we have. For a flaneuse, but that struck me as a very strange kind of limited way of thinking about women's history in cities, because there have always been women in cities, and if we look outside this narrow group of you know upper middle class or aristocratic women in Paris in the 19th century, there were women of many classes who were out in the streets, whether they were going to work, you know, who knows what they were doing on their way to work if they were stopping and looking and you know imagining women sort of working as nannies or or at the markets. There's a historian called David Dariach who looks at the history of women in 18th century Paris and says that the streets really belonged to women because they would sit out and sort of watch everything, watch the world as it went by, and were the masters of mistresses of gossip, and so really controlled sort of public life in their neighborhoods and decided what went and what didn't, and they knew everything that was going on. And that reminds me of Jane Jacobs's idea, you know, to fast forward to the 20th century, that a neighborhood really sort of flourishes when there are eyes on the street, and that very often is. Because there are women around, watching and talking to each other, and creating, you know, a life, a public life on those streets. And so, in terms of making a case for whether the flaneurs even exist, there's this argument that says that women are too visible and therefore can't act as a sort of observer、mm-hmm. of what is around them because they themselves are being observed by the men around them. You sort of make a case that it's simply the current definition of flaneurs that is wrong. It just needs a new definition. Yeah, it's that this idea of the flaneur is itself so vague. We have so many different versions of what a flaneur might be. I offered you Baudelaire's before, but there's Benjamin writes about the the flaneur. There's Balzac's novels are full of flaneurs, but there some of them are kind of miserable and going back to their garrets and hating their lives. And and some of them are quite wealthy and well off and you know intrigued by what they see in the city. Some of them are artists. You know the artist Flaneur is a classic figure in Balzac. So because the Flaneur himself is so unstable, I thought, well, then if we can't agree on what a Flaneur is, why is it that everyone seems so clear on what a Flaneuse isn't? You know, maybe we need to just open up 
the definition of what flannerie can be or what flaneuserie could be. And then once we do that, then we can let in all of these women. So George Sand, for instance, who I write about in a couple of chapters in the book, she comes up in these debates about whether there could be a flaneuse because in her autobiography, which is really wonderful, such a fascinating read. It's like in 10 volumes, but you can get the abridged oh, wow. version. <laughs> um, she, she has this one section where she talks about just after she moved to Paris and left her kids behind with her husband, you know, in the farm, it's not a farm, it was like an estate. So she says that she borrowed her brother's boots and bought some britches and in her men's clothing, she could go running from one end of Paris to the other. So that's really, you know, we think of George Sand as like this woman who dressed as a man and smoked cigars and had all these affairs. But the reason she was dressing like a man was not only to sort of shock and be really sort of avant-garde, but because it was just easier to get around than in all of these big billowing skirts. So George Sand, it's been said that she couldn't be a flannel because she had to dress like a man to go around in public. But she was still a woman. Like, what's, you know, mm. why does the fact that she's cross-dressed mean that she's no longer a flannel? I think actually that suggested to me that maybe the flannel was someone who was subverting certain ideas about what women were supposed to do, including how they were supposed to dress. Mm. You cover a lot of figures in this book, particularly a lot of literary figures, the Jean Rhys as well, yeah. and who's got an amazing life. I had no idea about half of it until I read your book. Oh, that's um, Particularly her sort of walking over the border while she was pregnant. That's yeah, fascinating. Exactly. That she sort walked, of drive, walked straight into France and yeah. then her passport was gone. Is that right? Yes. She had gotten married to this Dutchman who, I'm trying to remember the circumstances, he joined the French Foreign Legion and I think lost his Dutch passport because he, he was fighting in the First World War. And so he lost his Dutch passport. And so when he lost his passport, she lost hers because in those days when you got married, you took your husband's nationality. So if he's suddenly nationalityless or stateless, so are you. <laughs> so yeah, Jean Rhys and her husband, Jean Langlais, and, and her, her unborn child walked over the border from Belgium into France in 1919 and so that was how Jean arrived on the on the scene <laughs> it's incredible and it's also obviously in Bloomsbury you look at Virginia Woolf mm-hmm. and sort of her lot wandering around the area and also Martha Gellhorn oh yes oh, yeah. I love Martha Gellhorn yeah a personal hero oh I'm so glad to I hear love it. her and the chapter you write about her looks at that very uh, stark clash of desires that she had because she obviously she was married to Hemingway Mm. and had children and then was also this incredible war reporter in her own right and had this huge appetite to see the world Mm -hmm. and I loved you mentioned there's a telegram that Hemingway sent her which said are you a war correspondent or my wife in bed (laughs) exactly it's just like that shows the dichotomy of yeah that you could be one or the other exactly for Hemingway anyway yeah in terms of how that's changed over history. I mean, we're a long way from Martha Gellhorn, but how you would define a modern flaneuse, is it possible? I think Martha Gellhorn is a really interesting example to cite because hopefully our partners no longer think that we have to either be an adventuresome war correspondent or their partner. Yeah, (laughs) We'd like to think that we can have it all and do both. But I think that kind of tension is very much there for women, unfortunately. That was something that I did think about when I was putting the book together and thinking about which figures to include and which elements of my own life to write about. I don't have children. And so I think there's a degree to which I'm a bit more 
footloose and fancy free than I would be if otherwise. But I don't think that, I don't know, in my own life as I contemplate, you know, having kids, I'm, I'm very much hoping that we can invent models for motherhood, or I'm sure there are obviously women, you know, currently who are experimenting with different ways of doing this, but, you know, find models that fit where we feel like we aren't necessarily, quote unquote, settling down because we're partnering up and having children, but can sort of find a way to continue to adventure and and inquire while still having that sort of nourishing experience of having a child. There's a a chapter, your book takes us to Paris, takes us to Bloomsbury, Japan, Tokyo, Mm. Um, and particularly that chapter, you have quite a lot of personal information in there, particularly about the breakdown of a relationship Mm -hmm. while you're in Tokyo. Also because you said you found Japan really hard to read and you actually struggled to be a flaneuse there for a time. Mm-hmm. Can you describe what it's like for you, because you have this passion, what it's like to be in a city that you find hard to read? Yeah, Japan was so interesting because I didn't have any specific desire to go there. All the other cities in the book, I had ideas about them beforehand. But Tokyo, I went, I went because my partner was transferred there and I was really opposed to going in the beginning and he sort of made the decision without me, <laughs> which tells you a lot about that relationship and <laughs> he's no longer in my life. But at the same time, there is that feeling of like, well, this might be a really great time to go and get to see this other city. I love cities. It might be worthwhile. So there is that, again, that feeling of like, I should have some say in this, but since I don't, might as well enjoy it. So getting to Tokyo was just very surprising because I thought that I could approach it the way that I had always approached other cities, you know, by walking around and looking at shops and, you know, sitting in cafes or whatever. But that just was not my experience of life in Tokyo. It's not really obvious where the interesting cafes and bookshops or whatever, you know, shops or whatever you want to do to check out are. Okay, the shopping, no, that's that's a lie. Once you find the good neighborhoods to, to go clothes shopping, there's all these ridiculous boutiques with these names like Monsoon Flower and like... I don't know. And so I think I had like a moment as a cosplay girl. Um, (laughs) That's great. But in terms of places to sort of be outside of the house, like cafes or libraries or bookshops, I just couldn't understand. Like I would write down the the address for a bookshop that I wanted to visit. The way that they note down the addresses, there are three numbers and the first number refers to the kind of area in the section of the city and the next number is a sub section within the section and then the third number is the order in which the buildings were built in the neighborhood so if you're like building number 26 it's like the 26th building that was built there it's like well how are you supposed to know it's building 26 (laughs) oh of course right that one looks like it was built after 25 and before 27 so you I mean even taxi drivers don't know if you give them the address and they plug it into their sat nav they don't necessarily know how to get there and then once they take you there, then you might be left with this kind of blank looking building. And you're like, what? Where's the bookshop? <laughs> yeah. I mean, is it that both the ease of navigation in a city as well as things being on eye level? Because I mm-hmm. suppose in Tokyo, lots of things are sort of on top of each other. Yeah, and hidden. Um, yeah, it's sort of hidden at the back of a building. You go mm-hmm. up a narrow corridor and suddenly there's a staircase and there's mm-hmm. five shops upstairs. Yeah, exactly. Is that sort of a big factor for being a flaneurse and sort well, of finding yeah, things on a whim? it was a real kind of challenge to my... I, I didn't realise that I was too, you know, beginner-level flaneurs until I went to Japan and to Tokyo, and I was like, oh, okay, i got to step up my game. I actually need <laughs> to go up some stairs and look around corners and not just expect things to be evident and apparent on the street, you know, with their shop front presented to the world. It's, you know, I don't want to... 
glamorize, you know, the the Eastern mystique of Tokyo. It's not about that. It really is as simple as like go up the cement staircase, and what you're looking for is probably up there. In terms of cities you've been to,、mm-hmm. are there other cities like Japan that you found particularly challenging to sort of navigate with this mindset? That's a good question. I've not found any other others that were comparable to Tokyo in terms of how like tricky. I mean, I was in Hong Kong for a while. I didn't write about that in the book because I really found I just didn't have much to say about Hong Kong. But I loved Hong Kong. I was intrigued by Hong Kong. I connected with Hong Kong immediately in a way that I didn't with Tokyo. With Tokyo, it took a while. It took like a year. No, I can't think off the top of my head of any other cities that I felt alienated by or had a really hard time engaging with. Basically, I can be plopped down. You know, just about anywhere, and find something interesting. <laughs> and in terms of the opposite,、uh, you have a very clear, strong connection to Paris.、Mm. But aside from Paris, what other cities around the world that do you think you can thrive in as a Flinders? Oh, that's a really good question. Well, I love London. I mean,、mm. London's like my what's the word? I'm trying to think of the appropriate familial relation for London.、Um, I'm bound. To Paris by something that I don't understand, but maybe I occasionally have little affairs with London. I don't know. I really I'm intrigued by London in lots of different ways. It's changed a lot for me over the years. I was very disappointed by it when I first came in the '90s. That trip when I was living in Paris, and I just went to like Madame Tussauds and like Piccadilly Circus and all the places that you go when you're an American visiting London for the first time. But yeah, it's sort of gone on and off over the years. Soon after. I started dating my husband, who's from Southeast London. I started really loathing London. It was like a kind of need to manifest my independence within our couple, I think. And then he moved to Paris, and then I started feeling much better about London because now <laughs> I felt like, okay, Paris is safe. It's declared we live in Paris. But now I can keep having my affairs with London. <laughs> in terms of someone that wants to go out and maybe start taking note of what is around them, start the life of a、mm-hmm. flaneurs. Do you have any tips for them? Is there any sort of adjustments in mindset one must make in order to really function? Well, I think there's the sort of obvious slow down, look around, and then maybe the somewhat less obvious like ask questions. Why are things put together this way? But there's this sense for me where the city starts to come together. It's like you need to know a little bit already, or have some like grain or inkling of knowledge about a neighborhood. It has to come from somewhere. That sort of engagement, I guess, is what I'm、mm-hmm. saying. So I, if I'm in Shoreditch and I know that that's a place where there's sort of a historical Jewish community in the East End, and I know there's a you know a long tradition of French like Huguenots moving to that neighborhood and becoming weavers, and I know a little bit about like Rachel Lichtenstein's writing on Rudinsky's room or Ian Sinclair, and if I've read bits and pieces, then when I come to a neighborhood, it starts to come to life for me. But if you're going somewhere cold and haven't read anything, then I think it's it's really as simple as like looking at the people who are there and what are they doing and sort of maybe writing down things that you overhear and turning them over. So it's something about interrupting that everyday flow of like kind of going from A to B, or even if you you sort of notice something on one level but you don't stop and really think about it. It's kind of finding ways to disrupt your sort of everyday habits in the city and. Connecting with details that jump out at you. Roland Barthes, who I write about in the Japan chapter, has this wonderful theory of the punctum in his writings on photography and camera lucida. The punctum is the thing that pricks you. 
when you're looking at a photograph and it might be different for everyone, like the detail that kind of sticks out and pierces you or like makes some sort of emotion arise in you. So he's speaking specifically about the photograph and it could be different. You know, you and I could look at the same photograph and find a different punctum. But I think it's the same thing when you're walking in the city. You're just becoming alert to the things that might affect you or prick you or make you sort of think twice. I was always wondering, like, I love a good walk. Mm -hmm. And I think in London I walk with purpose too often. Mm -hmm. And I also have have a very almost primal fear of getting lost, Mm. which I think doesn't help in terms of wandering. That's so interesting. That was a chapter that got cut on getting lost. Yeah. See, like, I think it's the thrill of being lost is sometimes quite exciting because mm-hmm. you have that chance to suddenly make a connection to something you know. Mm-hmm. You suddenly realise that that place, that street you've always walked down is only two blocks away. Mm-hmm. But then the fear of not having that moment mm-hmm. it really, really scares me. Yeah, exactly. There's like a wonderful moment before you know a city too well yeah. where everything is a discovery and you're sort of putting it together and you might get lost. There's the fear of getting lost. And then that something about that magic goes when you know it too well. So you want that that risk, but to a manageable degree. I had a whole essay on lostness, and I get really impatient with this, like, smug, sanctimonious praise of lostness that you see everywhere. Like, all these essays people were writing, like, now that there's GPS on our phones, we'll never be lost again. And I'm like, that sounds okay. Yeah. <laughs> I'd like to never be lost again. <laughs> I feel really like I failed personally, like a, a deep sense of shame if when you I'm get lost. lost. Yeah, and I'm lost all the time, even with GPS on my phone. GPS is not a perfect science if you can't read a map. (laughs) Flanners is published by Chateau and Windus and is out now. Books are usually silent things. It's what's inside them that makes the noise, inside the imagination of readers. Until, that is, the bookshop band came along. Now the books are all singing their little hearts out. Take this song that they performed live in the studio for Claire Armitstead, composed entirely of first lines. High, high above the North Pole On a mountain above the clouds once lived a man His children are falling from the sky Oh, 
Once Upon a Time, inspired by fantasy, surreal, sci-fi and curious novels, you may well know. I think I recognise three on a first listen, which is slightly embarrassing. For the record, it's Peter Pan, A Tale of Two Cities and The Go-Between. With me here in the studio are the band themselves, singer and cellist Beth Porter and songwriter and guitarist Ben Please. I didn't actually credit you with being a songwriter, Beth, but you are as well. Yes. And you have to presumably be working like a factory because you're putting out huge numbers of tracks. We do, or Mr B's Emporium of Reading Delights, who, the bookshop where we write all these songs, they keep on booking author events and getting us to read the book and go in, so we kind of, we're faced with all these deadlines, and so we just have to write, otherwise be a bit of a silent event in the evening. It's a slightly odd way round for composers, isn't it? So the bookshop makes a booking, says it's going to be on this author, can you please now compose a track around it? Exactly. Or more than one for one evening? Well, we normally do two songs for each evening, because if we both read the book, then we'll each have a different take on it, um, a different response to it. So generally, two songs will come out, sometimes one and sometimes three. Yeah. kind of depends quite often how busy we are at the time and how much time we have to actually read the book and to then write the song. Because quite often we write the song on the day of the gig. And that's kind of the easy part in a way, because we know that that's got to happen by the evening. So whatever happens, we'll have a song or two. But it's the reading that obviously takes up time. And if you're busy doing other things, that's that's the thing that you have to squeeze in. So sometimes it's one if we're especially busy. You've both got other careers. Beth, you have backed Eliza Carthy. You've got um, your own band, yes. which was very much fated last year. I was going to <laughs> quote one of our opposition papers, which I think named you as one of the bands of the year. Oh, yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely. Yes, I'd forgotten about that. Indeed. Yeah, it was very lovely to be credited amongst um, many of my friends who are folk musicians. And Ben, you're, you compose for film and animation. I have done quite a lot of that, but not so much as to call it a career it's always been a little sideline and a really nice thing when it's come along and it's actually one of the things that we'd like to do more of with the bookshop band because especially when a book that we've written a few songs about gets turned into a film the authors quite often are kind of phoning up the director saying well there are a couple of songs but we haven't yet had a had a sync on that. You came into the podcast, oh gosh, five years ago when you were just a baby thing. I think it was in your first year, into, you found it in 2010, weren't you? Yes, exactly. Where did this idea come from? Are you both huge readers? I don't think we were especially huge readers. I mean, I love reading, but I didn't really carve out enough time for it in my life, just being busy and on the road and things. But it was Ben who, Mr B's Emporium of Reading Delights, they knew of him and they asked him if he would come and play some music in the bookshop and Ben decided that being a songwriter, that would be the way he would approach it by actually writing songs inspired by the themes of the evening as they were at that time there was a series of events based around different countries and we ended up writing folk tales after he'd asked us to be part of the band we ended up writing songs inspired by folk tales and that's how it started and then it soon turned into writing songs inspired by books and that's what we've done ever since. It's interesting because 
the styles of books are very different, obviously, and with the one we've just heard is a particular area of books. You tend to, your albums, do we call them albums, uh, tend to be mm. themed around different genres. So it could easily be pastiche, your music, but it isn't pastiche because it's absolutely unmistakably the bookshop band. Yeah, I, I suppose there is, you know, there could be a temptation if you're reading a book set in, you know, 1900s America cowboy to do like a sort of, you know, cowboy. Dun, 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 dun. But um, <laughs> no, we never do that unless there's a real, you know, something really pulling us music it's always it's nice actually because there is no there's no remit really there's just we have to write a couple of songs based on our response to the book and so sometimes you have a really dark morbid book but the song that comes out is quite funny or light or the one I'm thinking of where there was like a musical link maybe was the Andrew Miller pure one with with your cello because it was set sort of late late 18th century and um, that's when Beth's cello was made. So there was a desire to make sure that the cello was in there being played, you know, as it might have been at that time. But no, we we definitely try and, I guess, steer away from pastiche and, and just try and write a song that we feel relates to the book, but also comes through us as songwriters, you know, whatever got us about that book. And it might be completely different to what, you know, you might expect to get out of that book. And everyone will have their own interpretations and responses and that's fine i've got in front of me two box sets and the box sets and you've got a ghost stories one and then you've got a a, you know science fiction one you've got all different genres Mm. um how did you collect those so it's obviously not just one book that's from lots of different books exactly so we basically in our first year we recorded four albums and each album was around the season of events that the bookshop were doing and they themed them around certain things so as beth said earlier like folk story different countries and so we did folk stories but then what happened after we did those is we spent the next three years just keep doing the Mr B's events touring around the country and we hadn't recorded anything so when at the beginning of last year we decided to sit down and record everything that we had we had this sort of pile of over a hundred songs to record and we just recorded them together so by the time the recording process was finished we then had these hundred songs that we were kind of almost assigning to different albums and it was quite a challenge to work out how to divide them up we thought about going sort of traditional book genres i guess you know but then that didn't often work so we actually almost made up our own genres but something just to tie them together into an album into a theme so in your first lines one, you have a Lolita, among other things, which I won't, wouldn't have thought of as science fiction or fancy. Well, it is, no. it, is fan- it is fancy, but in a different sense. Well, that, that song sense. was slightly different in the sense that the, the books weren't necessarily within that genre, but because the song came out so curiously, it kind of it had to go into that album of curious responses. And so it was less about the individual books, I guess, and more about the, the eventual song that came out, which was just plain weird. Is there an area you particularly love or you feel you're particularly good at? It's funny because it's kind of not maybe what we would have expected because we don't get to choose what books we're going to write songs about and we don't get to choose which books we're actually reading. I think it's full of surprises of things that you actually enjoy that you don't think you would enjoy. So I didn't think I was very into fantasy and that kind of thing and then I've enjoyed quite a lot of the books like David Mitchell's The Bone Clocks. I didn't think I'd be into that kind of thing and it's one of my favourite books and ended up getting a really cool song out of it as well so I think it's full of surprises and things that you're not really expecting. 
What about you, Ben? I think if you asked me the question about what type of book I liked before we started the bookshop, Ben, I would have said Victorian yarns because I'm a really slow reader. So, like, I can only read at the pace that my dad would tell me a story. Like, any faster doesn't really make any sense in my head. Having limited time, I thought, well, I'll just go for the classics. And I really enjoyed them. But then, obviously, with Mr. B's, these are mostly... 99% 99% of the time contemporary fiction across all sorts of genres and so same as Beth you just get surprised you read outside of what you would normally read and actually discover that they're great you know a book's great it's like songs in there if you ask me what genre of song I like I, I couldn't tell you it's all about an individual song it doesn't matter what genre it comes from. Now you're on a tour a, a huge international tour should we call it you've got London yeah. Paris Edinburgh you've also got places like Princeton and Bigger which I've never actually even, <laughs> even heard of <laughs> these are real differences of scale aren't they how do you manage that and how do you live I mean it's a three-month tour well, it's longer than that, actually. We we started touring in April, and we don't finish till end of October, and then we'll probably book after that anyway. But I guess flexibility, like, you know, normally we're playing in bookshops, which is a place that wouldn't normally have a band playing, so we kind of have to go and expect anything. So, so you we might have 20 people. Might have 20 people, might have 100 people, might have five people if it's a really tiny place. And And so we have a very makeshift... PA system that we use and we, we we generally don't mic ourselves up that much but just to lift our voices above like, the instruments like the cello is very loud and we, we don't really have loud voices so we just kind of ambiently lift the level up and just adapt to each space that we go to so we're, we're I think we're very flexible in our non-standard setup and it all squeezes into our tiny little car and that's pretty much where we're living at the moment. You live in your car and then presumably in bookshops? Yeah. <laughs> Did they yeah. put you out there? Yeah. Well, we shall be staying in Shakespeare and Co. in Paris in the bookshelves, yeah. which we uh, enjoyed very much the last time we were there, although it's quite daunting having books towering right above you and all around you. I think the first night we slept there, I didn't sleep very well at all. And then the next night, I think we had a glass of wine and everything was much better. <laughs> I'm, I'm worried about your finances. You're not going to be able to have a mortgage very easily, oh, are you? Thanks yeah. <laughs> for your concern. No, but we do enjoy what we do. And we've, we've considered lots of things like, well, you know, maybe get a van, maybe sleep in that for a bit, save some money. But I guess hopefully we're thinking that as these albums come out, so we're releasing one a month, it'll spread the word a bit and perhaps we'll even dip into the music scene as opposed to the literary scene and see if there's anybody that might, you know, enjoy it there. But so far we've done everything ourselves pretty much, so it doesn't make us a lot of money, but we do enjoy it. You haven't started doing music festivals because, I mean, you know, Latitude and Glastonbury actually mm. do have literary sites now. Have you started doing those? We've done Glastonbury, we did Glastonbury this year, but not in the literary tent. I think that's something that really would suit us, is something where it's very intimate and, and would have an audience that was interested in that kind of thing and we mm. haven't done that but we've done a lot of literary festivals we're doing wilderness festival again this year but i think folk festivals hopefully things like that might really be interested in it but it's haven't. very related to the folk tradition in the sense of its stories and songs inspired by stories and we you know we source our you know these are modern stories from 
particular sources, you know, that's kind of our remit and where we get our inspiration from. But it, it does resonate a lot with a lot of the folk festivals and folk people who are really into folk. It's the same kind of thing. It's just a different springboard, I guess. I'm definitely going to be telling everybody about it. And I'm also going to be getting that box set. That's going to solve my Christmas present Fantastic. problem for this year. So, so there you go. I tell everybody who's listening to this podcast, your Christmas presents sorted. <laughs> You can find out more about the music and the albums on www.thebookshopband.co.uk. And that's it for this week. Thanks to Lauren Elkin, Sean Kane, Claire Armitstead, Beth Porter and Ben Please of The Bookshop Band. Next week we join Will Self, Tony Parsons and Booker Prize long-listed A.L. Kennedy at a Guardian Live event discussing how to write a London novel. For more literary interviews, discussions and live events, search for Guardian Books Podcast. You can find us on the Guardian website, on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or even on your smartphone. Just spark up your favourite podcast app. We'll play out with another live recording from the bookshop band Before I Crack, inspired by Salman Rushdie's Midnight's Children. But for now, from me, Susanna Tresillian, thanks for listening. Mirroring memories I haven't told Picking, pickling, opening I will unfold Before I crack Before Meeting is locked into a curse. Green as grass up this perfect time lockers. Midnight meeting is locked into a curse. Emergency rummaging, pushing through a broken Spluttering hard for her to Grasshoppers, perfect time locker. Midnight meeting is locked into a curse. Green as grasshoppers, perfect time locker. Midnight meeting is locked into a curse. Green as grasshoppers, perfect time locker.
meeting is locked into a curse. For more great downloads, go to theguardian.com slash audio. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Squarespace. To find out more about how to set your website apart, head to squarespace.com slash guardian.